This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. But the KGB said we need to put one of these bombs on the human flight as well. Can you imagine if the Apollo 11 crew going to the moon had a bomb on it so that the NASA engineers could blow it up in case by mistake it ended up splashing down in the Black Sea. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. It's 9.07am on April the 12th, 1961. A young Russian sits inside a tiny capsule on top of the Soviet Union's most powerful intercontinental ballistic missile and blasts into the skies. His name is Yuri Gagarin and he is about to make history. We speak with Stephen Walker, author of Beyond, a new book that tells the thrilling story behind that epic flight on its 60th anniversary. Drawing on extensive original research and the vivid testimonies of eyewitnesses, many of whom have never spoken before, Stephen unpacks secrets that were hidden for decades and takes you into the drama of one of humanity's greatest adventures. Now, I thought I knew Gagarin's story, but discovered so much more after reading this book. The episode just scratches the surface and there is so much more in the book itself. Stephen and I could have talked for hours. Make sure you listen to the end of this episode for details of a book giveaway. Now, this podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our Patreons. And if you are enjoying the podcast and want to continue to hear it, please support me via a small or a large monthly donation. Plus, you will get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Still not sure? Listen to one of our Patreons tell you why they donated to the podcast. I'm Tim from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I support the Cold War Conversations podcast financially because the great research and the quality of the storytelling. Interested in helping us? Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. So back to today's episode. I'm delighted to welcome Stephen Walker to our Cold War Conversation. When people, particularly as it were in the West, to use a sort of, you know, blanket term, talk about space and the first man in space, they usually confuse it. Many people, many friends of mine confuse the first man in space with the first man on the moon, Neil Armstrong. I think people think about a race as the space race to put the first man on the moon. But of course, there was a first before the first man on the moon. And what I think is really moving and interesting about this and this story is that and I think it kind of kept me going when I was writing it. You know, this is not just a political story. It's not just a technological race. It's not just a, it's not just a clash of cultures and who's going to get first, all of which I've got. It's all that kind of drama. But it's also about this moment when all 
life that's been on this planet since life began three and a half billion years ago, suddenly this man is the first man in three and a half billion years to leave the biosphere, to leave the planet and to look down and to see it from above and to see us for what we actually really are. You know, this planet floating, as it were, in an eternity, it seems. And that is a massive, that's why I call it beyond, because it isn't just a sort of a history book. Far from it, actually. I hope it's something of a thriller in some ways, but it's really this incredible leap of the first human being to actually leave the cave and do something and see something that no eye had ever seen up to that point in all history, let alone human history. And so I I I kind of got a bit obsessed with that idea. This is a sort of pivotal moment. And although the moon landings are an incredibly pivotal moment as well and an incredible achievement, I still think this story of the first of the first of the first, as it were, is it, it's where it all began. Here was the first guy, this guy Gagarin, 106 minutes around the planet, 10 times faster than a rifle bullet, crosses, you know, first a sunset, then a sunrise, all in fast motion, sees the thinness of the atmosphere for the first time, sees what it is that actually protects and contains all life and how beautiful and how fragile that is. I mean, it's a really dramatic, visually kind of visceral experience, which I try to replicate by putting you in that capsule, in that moment in my book. You do that really well. I mean, cinematic is a is probably an overused word in book reviews, but certainly the descriptions give you that powerful visual image. And even though I I knew the story, it still held me because there were details within what what you tell that I didn't know about. Little dramas in there that happened, and we'll dig into that in 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 a moment. One of, one of the questions I had is obviously 1957 Sputnik, the first satellite goes up. Now, what was getting a human into space? Was that an obvious next step for the Soviets? It wasn't at all. Um, they did put a dog up, Laika, um, famously, the dog that died in space and earned the, quite rightly, I think, the abrobrium and hatred of dog lovers all over the world because actually poor old Laika went up with no means of coming back down again. And really, that was a kind of a spectacular stunt pushed by Khrushchev, essentially, you know, in the middle of the Cold War. But actually, no, not really. The impetus starts to come from the other side. And this is part of the race. It comes from the American side. It comes actually from the fact that the Americans, as I describe in the book, and I I really sort of, I mean, I didn't realize quite how badly the Americans were really doing at that point. I mean, everything was going wrong. Their rockets were blowing up. Their rockets weren't very powerful. Um, they hadn't got sort of anything really up into space. They had managed to get some monkeys up. There was nothing else at that point and certainly nothing into orbit. And there was kind of Laika, the dog, orbiting the Earth, albeit actually by then she was dead inside the capsule. She died of overheating, which the Soviets lied about for decades, um, claiming that she died actually after many orbits, but she actually died within the first few hours. It's horrible. But the reality is, is that the Americans needed something. They needed a win. And they sort of came up with this obvious idea to us, which is let's try to put a human being in space. And there were people really pushing for it in America. There were people like Werner von Braun, you know, the famous kind of V2 rocket engineer from World War II, and the guy that was a Nazi who sort of sold his colors to the Americans. But 
It was that impetus because in April 1959, after a rigorous selection of the finest test pilots in America, there is a press conference that takes place in Washington, D.C. And in front of the new zippy NASA logo, because NASA itself was only a few months old at that point, these seven men called the Mercury astronauts are introduced as America's gladiators in the cause of freedom. These are the guys that are going to take the Cold War to a new level by winning, essentially, the battle of the heavens. That's not a physical battle of guns and weapons in the obvious sense of the word, but it's a moral victory. It's an ideological victory. It is saying we are better than you on the other side of the Iron Curtain at a very dangerous time in history. The Russians, or the Soviets, I should say, are watching all of this. And there is one guy in the Soviet Union, who is one of the great characters in my story, because my story is really about characters, really. And his name is Sergei Korolev, and he's this top secret guy whose identity is not revealed to anybody and anybody in the West. It's top secret. And he is the architect of the entire Soviet space program and is also responsible for having built the biggest then missile nuclear missile in the world. And it is this guy who has a dream of spaceflight. He is the Elon Musk of his day. He is the guy that wants to put men on Mars, men on the moon, you know, orbiting space stations, explore the planets. I mean, he really is a visionary at that time. And his identity is completely secret. He's so valuable that he's protected by the KGB on his travels around the USSR in case the CIA ever actually identify and try to kidnap or assassinate him. So this is the guy that has the dream of putting a man in space. And he sees all of this and he takes his chance and he pushes Khrushchev, the then premier, and says, the Americans are doing this. We have to get there first. It isn't about just our technological supremacy. It is the literally fate of the world because there are all these neutral nations that do not know whether to go red, communist, hammer and sickle, Soviet, or the other way. You know, they have these flashpoints in Southeast Asia, in Vietnam, in Korea, in Cuba, Berlin. It's all happening right now. This is the epicenter of the Cold War. And so Khrushchev, who loves spectaculars, who loves to crow at the West, who loves to say, we do things better than you. We're better than you are. Communism is better than you are. He eventually says, yes. And that's what happens. It's a reaction, which is to the Americans making this decision that starts that race. So we're not starting in 1957 with Sputnik with ideas about putting humans in space. It's not part of a kind of a dedicated step-by-step program. It's the mess of politics. It's the mud that exists in international relations that actually pushes this thing and makes this unbelievable step beyond mere politics into something which is far huger, this step into the beyond. So that's really how it happened. There's a really rich range of characters and you really get into their their personalities. But there's there's other details in there that I really found interesting about, you know, the Soviets had particular fears about sending a, a human into space, particularly the isolation up there. No one had done this before. 
no one knew what to expect. There were all kinds of potential physical problems. You know, could they could could they breathe in space? You know, in weightlessness, could they swallow? Could would their heart stop beating? Would their blood pump round properly? Would you know? Would 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 they be able to survive extreme acceleration forces? I mean, there's a whole load of that sort of stuff that's going on. But there's another thing too, which is would they go mad in space? The fear of insanity was so real that they even had a term for it, which was a kind of respectable term at that time, which is space horror. I mean, they actually called it that. They thought that if you were a human being divorced from all existence, as we know it, the planet below you, you might actually go insane. And so in order to test whether astronauts or cosmonauts, as they call them, might actually go insane if they're in space, and in space for longish periods as well, they had a something called an isolation chamber, or even worse, it was called the Chamber of Silence. And the Chamber of Silence was literally that. It was a pressurised chamber, so it would look inside, you know, it would be the same kind of atmosphere as you'd have inside the capsule, the Vostok, as it was called, capsule one day. And what would happen is, cosmonaut trainees, there were 20 of them that were selected finally, would end up in turn in one of these places in this pressure chamber and then left there for days, if not for weeks, on their own. They were given some food to start with, an electric hot plate, a seat and nothing else. I mean, they had a toilet, I think. And then they were watched through portholes and through closed circuit television. They had no contact with the outside world at all. And they had no idea when they stepped into that chamber how long they were going to be there for. It might be two or three weeks. It might be two or three days. They didn't know. That was part of the test. And then occasionally late at night or early in the morning, there was no night or morning anyway. They just, it was always the same. They would have alarms that would suddenly shriek or music would suddenly play really loudly or or something frightening would suddenly happen. You know, a light would suddenly start blinking. Um, you know, a- anything to see how the cosmonaut would react. Some reacted very badly. They did not, they, you know, there were one or two cases of people pounding the doors and begging to be let out. Um, others managed to find a space in their heads where they were able to somehow deal with it and somehow cope with it. And Gagarin, interestingly, he spent a lot of his time imagining he was flying around the planet. It's incredible, this, and I believe it to be true. He actually imagined flying over all of these different cities over and over again. That's how he kind of coped to get through this thing. And he was in there for about two weeks. So madness, the fact that they might go insane up there, was a real problem. And it affected the way they constructed the controls of their capsules. Because unlike the American Mercury capsules, as they were called, which had an element of manual control, and these very experienced test pilots like John Glenn and Alan Shepard, who would fly them, were were insistent on having some measure of manual control. In the Soviet version, where there was no real trust anyway, the cosmonaut's job was essentially not to fly, but to endure the mission. But of course, there was always the possibility, if, if he had some kind of manual control in there, if, there was, if something went wrong, maybe they would need to control the spacecraft. But the worry of insanity was so strong that they were concerned that he might do something crazy. He might actually fly the spacecraft to America. He might defect. He might do goodness knows what. And so they devised this unbelievably crazy Soviet solution. 
which was that they gave manual controls to the cosmonaut, but they locked them. And you had to press certain digits in a certain order to unlock those controls. But they didn't want to give the digits directly to the cosmonaut in case he used them to do something crazy. So they put them in an envelope, which was sealed the night before the launch. And they then glued the envelope into the lining of his cabin. The idea being that if he was sane, he'd somehow find this envelope, open it, see these three numbers, press them, unlock the controls and fly the spacecraft home safely. This is how crazy it got. You know, they, they, they were that worried about the possibility of the cosmonaut going amok. It's incredible. And this is one of the, well, there's just so many gems within the book of this sort of detail, which I, I just didn't know about. I think the, the other thing that I found incredible about the Soviets is at one point, the KGB are insisting that there's a bomb on board. I mean, you've got to start with the notion that what happens in that capsule is essentially a kind of a metaphor for what happens in the whole of the Soviet Union and most of the satellite states in the Cold War. Essentially, there is no trust between ruler and ruled. That's how it works, okay? And the spacecraft controls the flight, and the person inside it, the cosmonaut, is is the dog, you know, is the, is the, 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 you just do what you're told, okay? And that's what you're basically there to do. If you actually look at the controls of one of these, on one of these early Russian, early Soviet spacecraft, it's a joke. I mean, I say in my, in my book, it looks like the inside of a 1960s Volkswagen. At best, I mean, there's about four controls. I mean, they're not even controls, really, a force of dials and a sort of a globe, a little globe that looks like it comes straight out of a kind of a primary school. I mean, it's where you're, which doesn't even work properly, actually, because at one point Gagarin thinks he's over the United States of America, when in fact he's over the South Pacific. I mean, it's, it's, it's literally like that. And a very primitive radio that didn't work most of the time. But just in case something went really wrong, they had this backup on all of the dog flights that actually paved the way. And I start the book with one of them in December 1960, with all of the dog flights that paved the way for man flight, the KGB insist on having a bomb, as you say, attached to the spacecraft, which is automatically designed to trigger and explode, destroying the spacecraft and everything that's inside it. If there's any problem and the spacecraft looks like it's going the wrong way or re-entering the atmosphere at the wrong point, it might land somewhere like Alaska or somewhere else that's kind of non-Russian or non-Soviet by mistake. And this bomb is actually used. And one, I mean, I start the book with it. Essentially, it starts with two dogs actually in a spacecraft with a bomb on board that is live, heading by mistake towards the frozen wastes of Siberia. And we don't know what happened in the next few moments, but we do know is that there was a timer on board this bomb as well, which was set to 60 hours. And if the thing wasn't discovered within 60 hours, the bomb would blow up. And the story starts really with these rescuers crossing Siberia in one on horseback to begin with, and then on helicopters in one of the worst Siberian winters to try and get to this capsule with this dog or rather two dogs inside it before the thing actually blows up. But the KGB five or six days before Yuri Gagarin's flight, said we need to put one of these bombs on the human flight as well. Can you imagine if the Apollo 11 crew going to the moon had a bomb on it 
so that the NASA engineers could blow it up in case by mistake it ended up splashing down in the Black Sea rather than in the Atlantic or wherever it did, ocean. Can you imagine? That's what they talked about. And there's this KGB general called Ivashutin, who's the head of Smirsh, who's got a face like a butcher's slab of meat. And he sits there and he says, we have to put this bomb you know, on the, and the human mission. And they, they, these serious faced engineers and missile programmers and, and top politicians are sitting around a table, you know, a few days before the flight. And they're seriously debating this. And we know it because I was lucky enough to find and have translated for me a completely illegal diary that was written by the head of cosmonaut training, a man called Nikolai Kamanin who is our fly on the wall. He's, he's a hero of the Soviet Union. He's a colonel. But every night he goes back and he writes this stuff in his diary secretly, which could possibly put him in the gulag if it was discovered. And so you've got this person there at all of these meetings kind of telling us what was going on. So this is why we know that's what happened. In the end, it was decided they wouldn't. And so Gagarin was allowed to fly without the bomb. But he very nearly did have that bomb on board. Wow. Wow, that that's just in- incredible, and I'm I'm incredulous around as you've sort of uh, outlined the how primitive the technology was that you know they were flying with. There's a great photo in uh, the center pages of the book, a color photo of what the interior of the Vostok looks like, and and as Stevens described, it is just you know it's like there's a car. It looks like he's got a car radio there. It is. I think it is. I think it's <laughs> That guy, Kamanin, actually says, we don't think the radio's even going to work. And, we, and do you know, it, I mean, the incredible thing is we're, again, very tuned to this idea of, you know, you fly in space and you can talk to the mission control, right? And there's all those beeps that happen at the end of each sentence and all that. And that's, None of this happens here. This is a guy who doesn't get to talk to anybody for about half the flight. And in fact, it's even crazier than that. I mean, I, I, you can't make this stuff up. They actually decided before the flight to install a tape recorder with a piece of tape in there so that in the bits where they knew he was going to be out of radio contact, he could sort of talk into a tape recorder and describe his, you know, sensations and what it was like. The first human being ever to go into space. Okay. But whoever put the tape in forgot to put enough tape in. So he ran out halfway around the world. He actually ran out of tape. And Gagarin made one of the essentially few autonomous independent decisions in that entire flight, which was actually probably the only sensible thing to do, which is to rewind the tape to the beginning and then record over everything. These are the first impressions of the first human being in space. And he's recording over what he's just been saying about it. That's what it was like. So you're talking about a man who is spinning slowly through space at 18,000 miles an hour, uh, with his capsule darkened inside, and no one to talk to except a tape recorder that doesn't have enough tape in it. This is, this is what it was like. This is how primitive it was. But the key is, is that the Russians, the Soviets, needed a win. They needed to prove that they were top dog, that they were ahead, that the Americans, this great nation, this huge superpower that had done, you know, that was so ri- the richest nation on earth could not beat a nation that had suffered 27 million people dying in World War II, that had been occupied, that had had its industries and economy partially devastated, 
and all of the things that have happened since then, where, you know, people didn't have fridges or phones very much or radios or even TVs and all of those sorts of things. And here you have, here you have a moment, just a brief moment where suddenly Soviets are top dog and spook the hell out of the Americans when they do that. You know, they really do. And no one can understand how the hell they got there. But the way they got there was a combination of there was real vision there and there was unbelievable risk. I mean, the, the I had no idea until I started researching this book just how unbelievably dangerous that flight was. I mean, it should never have happened. It was it was a fluke virtually that he got back on the ground, even though he landed in a potato field off course with basically nobody to meet him. What what sort of odds did they have on a successful flight? Well, less than 50-50, definitely. Wow. Um, you know, I mean, can you imagine going up in a rocket today where you've got basically more chance of being killed than not? Did Gagarin know what those odds were? No, I think some of it. It's a great, great question, Ian. I mean, we know from little bits and pieces that they were told some of it, but we also know that they weren't told all of it, but enough to spook anybody. Here is the first human being in history to sit on top of the world's biggest intercontinental ballistic missile, a million pounds of thrust, a missile big enough in 1957 it was developed to fly from the Soviet Union to New York and then with a thermonuclear bomb on top to destroy whole cities. And essentially, I mean, this is a slightly kind of amended way of putting it, but essentially, because it was amended, that was actually the missile was slightly changed, but essentially Gagarin replaces the hydrogen bomb. Mm. That's what he's doing. He's sitting in a sphere, a padded sphere with three portholes. As I said, very primitive instrumentation, a radio that doesn't work properly um, in place of a thermonuclear weapon. And then he's blasted into the sky upwards as opposed to heading towards America. That's what the situation is. And they did it because the Americans were stumbling. And the Americans were stumbling. The the, the concentrated chronological narrative of my book, it's not like the whole history of everything. It's a a narrative. There is obviously backstory, but the narrative is essentially four months. That's it. That's my story. It's essentially end of December to April. Ba-boom. And what happens in that time is that the Americans, something, I don't want to give it all away, but something goes really wrong in America. And the American NASA teams stumble. They have an argument. Do we go further or do we not? Do we do another test flight? Do we not? And that stumbling is in the news because America is obviously a much more open country in that respect than the Soviet Union. And it's the stumbling that the Soviets are seeing. And this guy Korolyov is seeing. And he sees an opportunity to accelerate the manned space program massively. And at that point to put up two launches of the last dress rehearsal flights with a dog on board and with a human mannequin on board within about two weeks of each other. And then, even then, even if certain things aren't tested, it doesn't matter. We go forward. We continue. Let's keep going. We've got a gap. We've got a window of probably three weeks. This is after years. We've got about three weeks and this guy goes for it. And we feel you feel it in the story. There's an acceleration that starts at that point. Just as the Americans are hesitating, the Soviets are moving and they're watching everything. And at that point, they go 
with much bigger risks than they might otherwise have taken. Recognizing the what is at stake here is Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more is the future of the world. And I don't think that's an exaggeration to say that in 1961. And so they go for it and they go in the gap and they get up into space. They get a human up into space. I mean, two and a half weeks, three weeks before the Americans do. It's the, it's right down to that. I mean, it's really a, almost like a photo finish, really, when you think about what's at stake here. But to take that risk is huge. And the reason they're able to take it is because Everything is so secret. So they decide they're not even going to announce the fact that their cosmonaut, Yuri Gagarin, is actually actually in orbit until he's in orbit. If he blows up on the launch pad, as I say at the very beginning of the book, if he blows up, he will die unknown. He will be a not even a footnote to history. He's gone. He doesn't exist. He's a non-person. Okay. Whereas the Americans know that if they send somebody up into space, as they had actually planned to do with Alan Shepard, who was going, hopefully, for the Americans to be the first human in space, they know that's going to be televised to 80 million American viewers live. And the real fear is that that rocket is going to explode on live television. In the middle of the Cold War, the Americans cannot get a rocket into space. And there we see a human being killed on the pad, right there in front of everybody. And this would have happened within the first two months of President Kennedy's presidency. So the risk was huge. And there was one government spokesman, very senior, who said, if this goes wrong, Mr. President, this will be the most expensive public funeral in history. And Kennedy terrified. He's terrified of that mistake. The Soviets are not terrified because they can keep things secret. They've been doing it for years. That is their culture. They can get away with it, essentially. And so where you have a culture of caution in the United States, you have a culture of risk in the Soviet Union. And that is where the story goes to with all of these personalities. That's the kind of thriller drama of it. I mean, you know, I really was amazed as I started to kind of research this and thought, my God, this is, I mean, it's the, the book has now been optioned for a TV series. And I think it'd be quite interesting uh, you know, to see how they do that because it is actually a drama, really. It's a very dramatic kind of beat as you get towards this point where, where these these two nations are are jockeying and one knows what the other one's doing and the other one hasn't really a clue what the other one is doing. You see what I mean? But everything is at stake in that battle. And it's a really thrilling drama because even though you, you, well, I knew how it ends, 
there's still some bumps and twists and turns in that in that story that I was completely un, unaware of. Now, one of the things I, I, you know, I found interesting, and there's just so much in here that I found interesting, was you know, the, oh, this, you're very kind. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds wonderful. Well, the the listeners to the podcast love the sort of the detail, mm. and and one of the details I picked out was this Soviet test dummy Ivan Ivanovich Ivanovich Ivanovich, yeah. mm. mm. um, because th- this was this mannequin, as you said, but it was stuffed full of rodents. It was stuffed full of rodents, and it also had a. <laughs> they needed to see. Basically, they did two dress rehearsals in March 1961. And the idea was to see, you know, with minimal testing, um, I have to say that at one point, they weren't even considering developing a spacesuit. That's how that's how they were going. That's how much of a risk they were taking. It was only done at the last minute, actually, to develop an actual spacesuit for the cosmonaut. But what they decided to do is to, in double quick succession, whilst the Americans are doing this hesitating, not sure whether they're going to put a man up or not on the next flight, these guys put up two very quick dress rehearsal flights. And in them, they did the exact flight that Yuri Gagarin, who had not at that point been selected. Um, they were still, you know, candidates who might also have taken that place. But they put these flights up and they put the flights up with dummies on board in spacesuits. But inside the dummy, and the dummy was made by some kind of, I don't really do it, it was some Moscow centre that basically does dummies and mannequins, probably for shops and things. <laughs> and it's a credible story. It's Again, it's all that kind of rubber band. You oh, know, yeah. I mean, it, it, basically, think Soviet Wallace and Gromit goes to the moon, <laughs> and you're beginning to get some idea of what we're dealing with here. But it's kind of heroic, a bit like Wallace and Gromit going to the moon. I mean, I, I think it's r- remarkable what was achieved, even though the risks were hideous at the time. But what they did in this instance was that they put these two dummies with two dogs sitting next to them in a container, put them in this spacecraft, this thing called a Vostok, which was this sphere that I've talked about, you know, with the same instrumentation, obviously. I mean, an identical copy of the thing that would actually fly with a human inside. Um, But to test out these kind of rather dodgy radio communications, they also, apart from putting rodents, as you rightly say, I think were 40 black mice. It's very lovely. It's like a fairy tale. 40 black mice and 40 white mice went into cavities. Why 40 black mice and 40 white mice? Don't get me started. But they went into specially designed cavities and thighs and the chest of this of this life-sized mannequin called Ivan Ivanovich, which is like John Smith or something, you know, to us. And they put in the stomach area, I think, it's in the book, I can't actually quite remember, I might have got it wrong, but it's definitely in the sort of torso bit, the trunk bit, a tape recorder. And the idea was that the tape recorder would send out sort of things that the ground could then check whether they were actually receiving them. So get this, they were actually sending out recordings of a famous Russian choir and singing Russian homeland songs and patriotic Soviet songs. And they also... I mean, I always think this might have been done as a joke, actually, as a kind of a as a kind of a real kind of thumbs up, thumb nosing, whatever the expression is, you know, to the Americans. But they also put recipes for Russian cabbage soup on the tape recorder. So as this thing is going around the planet, there are electronic intelligence gathering stations in the Aleutian Islands run by the CIA that are picking up this choir singing in Russian, followed by a cabbage soup recipe as this thing goes over the top of them in orbit and disappears <laughs> towards the east. I mean, 
it's insane. Anyway, when the dummy actually lands somewhere in Siberia in the middle of a snowdrift, and it's a nightmare trying to reach this dummy on both occasions, there are villagers there that think that this is human, and they cannot believe that, you know, it's the middle of Siberia, and they cannot believe that these rescuers are being so callous with this kind of inert spaceman lying in the snow. And I think out of all of that came a sort of myth, which we have to this day, called the myth of the lost cosmonauts. It's sort of one of those conspiracy theory things you find on the internet, which is quite big, actually, that before Gagarin, there were these other cosmonauts who went to space, and they just died. And the Soviets callously kept it all secret and made Gagarin the first. Total nonsense. But I do think that these kind of myths begin with a life-size mannequin lying in the snow, which are kind of seen by villagers. And it looks like a dead cosmonaut, when in fact, it isn't. It's a dummy. Because you have a photo of it in the in the book as well, and it does look really lifelike. But you, you mentioned a little bit earlier about the sort of last-minute nature of some of the aspects of the, the the Soviet effort. And there were two things that really I was amazed at was there was a last minute bit of training for Gagarin yeah. in terms of uh, if he had to do a manual re-entry. Yeah. And the second one was the worry about him being accused of of being a spy yeah. if he landed in some remote part yeah. of the Soviet Union. Yeah. <laughs> and some guy has the bright idea of painting CCCP on his helmet in red paint. <laughs> in the last few seconds. In the last few seconds. <laughs> and, and, and he says, oh, don't worry, it will dry while he's going up. I know. And that's all. I mean, look, can I just say this about my book, which is I had to, I put in a disclaimer at the beginning of the book, which says, this is going to sound like a thriller and I made it up. And the dialogue is all made up because there's a lot of dialogue. It really isn't. I mean, I it, I mean, I have kind of, you know, I've done my kind of academic sources at the back. I mean, everything that is in there is sourced, including the dialogue, because I interviewed lots of eyewitnesses and I've got lots of original eyewitness reports translated from the Russian. And, into, you know, I mean, it's, it is, it is, what's in there is what I really believe. Of course, I'd have made mistakes. I, I'm human, I'm bound to, and I'm sure, you know, people will pick them up and I, I'm willing to accept there are probably loads of them. But I, I, as far as I'm, this is what happened. These, these are what, this is what happened. And we have independent witnesses from several people to what you just described. They literally painted that on his helmet, I would say 30 minutes before he went into the rocket. Because there was a panic that when he stood up in his orange spacesuit, he looked like a guy called Gary Powers, who was an American pilot of a U-2 spy plane that had been shot down by a missile, a SAM missile, over Russia the previous year. And this guy ended up, you know, actually uh, having a state trial, you know, show trial and was actually in prison. I mean, it was a huge thing because the Americans denied that, you know, he was, everything was got denied until it became very obvious that actually this was very much an own goal for the US. Gagarin, when he stands up, having got his spacesuit on, looks just like all those pictures that everyone had seen in the newspapers in Pravda and Izvetsia and elsewhere of Gary Powers. And so there was a terror that he was going to be attacked by kind of angry peasants with pitchforks being terribly patriotic and killing him, possibly. So that's why at the last moment they had to do something about it. And they put the CCCP thing, which was painted. They actually managed to find a painter. I say, I, I, this is also true. They got the, they got quick drying red paint uh, that she found from somewhere. And they were able 
to they got a man who had a very steady hand who was able to paint the CCCP. <laughs> and it was, you're right, Gagarin said, but it's not dry. Hey, I know, it'll dry on the way to the rocket. <laughs> and off they went. They were thinking, this can't be real. It's true. It actually happened. That's what happened, you know. Um, and in fact, when he landed, way off course, because everything went very wrong, um, as I explained, I won't go into too many details. I want people to enjoy that because there's so much that did go wrong in so many ways. But he landed hundreds of kilometers off course. So there was nobody there. And he ended up in this plowed field. And the only people in this field was a very old lady um, and her granddaughter who were actually picking potatoes. And and they looked at him and they saw this guy kind of coming towards them, waving his arms around, wearing a helmet with an orange spacesuit, And they... <laughs> ran away they were so terrified they didn't know what it was they ran away and he kept saying no 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 comrades i'm soviet i'm soviet i'm soviet you know and then they saw the cccp the ussr uh, and then they sort of gingerly approached them and we know that because i've got the witness from both of those people from the time and uh and the description of exactly how they remember seeing the first human being arrive back on earth from space incredible and the the book is is full of these incredible uh pieces of of detail i mean i one thing i was surprised at that i again i wasn't aware of is that he didn't actually land in the capsule no the soviet technique was to eject him with an ejector seat yeah well, the, 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 because again, it's all to do with the pacing of this because they've got to go fast to beat the Americans. They haven't got time to develop a capsule that can actually land with a human being inside because because they don't want to land in the sea like the Americans do in case, God knows, uh, you know, a, an American ship gets there first if anything goes wrong or it's off course or something like that. And also they had some massive problems with the dinghy. Amazingly, it kept leaking the whole time. So Gagarin went into space with a dinghy that would have basically meant he would sink instantly if he landed in the sea. So because they didn't have time to develop this, and he was going to land on on hard, you know, Russian soil, just like the Soyuz capsules do today, actually. Same technology, except that today they land inside it. Then they couldn't land on terra firma inside it. So at about 23,000 feet, Yuri Gagarin or a cosmonaut would be ejected. Okay. But there was a problem there. And the problem was, was that in order to claim the world high altitude record, which is very important for the Soviets to claim, because of course he's up in space. So obviously it's higher than anything had ever been before, as well as the world long distance record, because he'd flown nonstop all the way around the globe. They had to satisfy the conditions of an international federal aviation, an international aviation organization. <laughs> That was that did all these records, all these high altitude, high speed, everything. They were responsible. This organization, I think it was based in Switzerland, in Geneva. Now, the problem was that they had a rule, which was that you could only actually claim the high altitude record or the world speed record, or whatever it happened to be, if you landed on basically back on the ground on the same vehicle that you'd taken off from which was clearly not the case here because Gagarin was going to eject from his at 23,000 feet because if he landed inside it, he'd probably get killed. So what do you do? There was this huge debate about what to do about 10 days before the actual mission itself. Again, everything's last minute. And the decision was made to simply lie about it. So they lied about it. They said, that Yuri Gagarin did land inside his capsule. And he went around the world afterwards on tours to hundreds of countries telling everybody dutifully that he landed inside his capsule. 
And the lie continued for the next 30 years. So for three decades until the 1990s, the official line was that Gagarin landed in his capsule. And I, you find this everywhere still. So I went to a museum in a place called Saratov, which is actually very close to where he did in fact land. And there's this enormous mural on one wall of Gagarin stepping out of his capsule, <laughs> surrounded by adoring, very Soviet-looking collective farmers, you know. And and I said to the, this is completely fake. This never happened like that. She said, yeah, but it's a nice picture. We like it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he should have landed like that. So they kept that and so many other lies like that. And it was actually rather wonderful because there were lots and lots of people, of course, who did see, it's like 1984, you know, they saw that he actually, who lived in the area, that he they saw the capsule came down and he wasn't in it. And they saw that he parachuted down and he was two or three kilometres away from the capsule. So they duly kind of reported this. And at one point, Within a couple of days, the lies got so entangled that Pravda was carrying both versions of the story. They were carrying the story that he landed in his capsule, the story that he hadn't landed in his capsule. And finally, a sports commissar actually had to sign a completely fake confession, which says, and I've got this, which says that he certifies duly as the sports commissar of the Soviet Union that Gagarin did in fact land inside his capsule. And it's even in this guy's biography and autobiography that he wrote 35 years later. So it just stayed and it stayed and it stayed on all these incredible lies. They just kept getting perpetuated for decades is what happened. Um, And yet it's completely untrue. And what I do in my book is I unpick that meeting. So I take you into that room where this meeting is happening, where the lie that lasts for three decades starts. And you, I've got these guys sitting there and say, well, what do we do? Do we say this? Do we say that? Do we do the other? Because I've got my fly on the wall diarist writing illegally in his diary every night. And we have his testimony. And so we get into the guts of what's happening behind and we see how the lie is constructed, how the lie is going to be made and how the world is going to be told it. And that's what happened. Incredible, incredible <laughs> stuff. I mean, Gagarin is really interesting character because obviously he's he's the main character in this, but you sort of get a bit more into his personality. I hadn't sort of thought of him as having a great sense of humour, but, you know, at, at liftoff he's saying, let's go, and and then he's radioed at one point to ask how he is, and he says he's fine, and he radios back, how are you? I'm yeah, he does. <laughs> he does. Well, because the guy, Sergei Korolev, that I talked about, you know, this architect, uh, this amazingly top-secret architect for the whole thing, this guy loves Gagarin. I mean, it's a father-son relationship. It's really rather beautiful. There's a photograph in the book of the two of them, and you, you kind of sense it. I mean, Gagarin was essentially he was how should i put it it's not a nice way to put it but he was sort of korolev's avatar he was the guy that was going to do what korolev was too old to do to go to space which was korolev's dream as ever since he was a child and his mother told him stories about traveling around the world on a magic carpet and it was beautiful and and so they have this and of course he's also like a sort of awful parody of abraham and isaac he's he might kill his child you know, he might kill Gagarin because there's such a huge risk doing this actual flight. So he is absolutely, I've got great eyewitness from people who are actually in the launch bunker who were watching Korolev 
this kind of burly guy that's a brilliant engineer, brilliant organizer in his 50s, but he's also quite ill. He's been in a gulag in one of, you know, he's a victim of Stalin's terror in the 1930s. You know, he's had his teeth smashed out by Stalin's henchmen, and yet he's now the, the secret architect of the Soviet space program. And there he is in this bunker, and he is sweating, and he is taking aspirins every five seconds, and he is really, really nervous. Is he going to kill his son, essentially, in the next few minutes? And the son, as he rightly says, says, um, he says, how are you? How are you? And the son, as it were, Yuri Gagarin, comes back and says, I'm great. How are you? <laughs> and actually, there's a lovely, lovely Russian word, which is translated best as I suppose it's kind of American way of translating it, but of Korolev going, that's my boy, like at a boy, you know, I mean, yeah. it's a lovely moment. There is a great moment on the launch pad when they're waiting to go and Gagarin is all strapped in. I'm giving too many things away. No one's going to want to buy the book. Oh, there's so much more in there. Don't, don't okay. think we're Okay, well, shall I tell this little story? Here. Yeah, go on. Well, it's a great story because he's waiting. They've got a launch window, okay, which is not very, very big. It's in Kazakhstan, what was then Soviet Kazakhstan. And the Cosmodrome, which is we now call it Baikonur, which is where modern Russian Soyuz rockets go to the International Space Station, uh, but was then this top secret, enormous many, 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 probably a hundred times bigger than Cape Canaveral. I mean, that's not an exaggeration. It's huge. I've been there. It's enormous. Now it's sort of falling apart rather sadly, but then it was cutting edge, cutting edge. And this guy is on the launch pad. There's this huge, I mean, the biggest rocket in the world, all steaming with white vapor and everything else. And they got this launch window and they've got to hit it. If they don't hit the launch window, if they don't hit this launch window, they are screwed because what is going to happen is that this thing is going to land on capitalist soil. It's just the way the orbital mechanics work. Okay. So they've got to get it right. Or they've got to delay for, you know, and delaying is a massive thing because the rocket's got to be defueled and all that sort of stuff. So the Gagarin is sitting in there. The hatch is closed and there are 32 bolts on this hatch and they've got about 40 minutes left. And suddenly, one of the contact lights that shows that the hatch is fully and securely bolted doesn't come on. So the hatch is not necessarily fully on, in fully in place, fully sealed, which means that if they go ahead with the launch in this tight window and it's no good, Gagarin is going to die. And if it's okay, then it's just a kind of electrical fault of some description. It's not actually that the thing isn't properly secured. Then he'll be fine. What do you do? You, this is that you're standing, you're trembling on the precipice of history. And a decision has to be made in the next few minutes about what you're going to do. So Korolev, desperate, taking his pills, sitting in the bunker several feet, I mean, 40, 50 feet underground, because this rocket, if it blows up, you know, you, the only safe place is to be 50 feet under steel reinforced concrete. And he's got a periscope, goes right up the top, and he's looking at the rocket, he's talking to Yuri Gagarin, and he says to the engineers on top of the launch pad on the gantry, he says, we've got to take the hatch off, and you've got like 15 minutes to do it. This is a massive hatch, okay, 32 bolts on it three pyrotechnic fuses, bombs, basically, which will then be ex used to explode to take the hatch off when Gagarin is ejecting at the end of the flight. Think of it as just an ejector seat, and this is the hatch that has to come off. So they race, and I've got the witness of the people. I've got the guy that did it, basically. And they pull the bolts 
off this one, each one in turn 32 bolts they take off one by one i mean they, they say it's all arms and legs at that point one of these three guys taking the bolts off is the strongest man they can find and he's able to kind of pull this it's very heavy this hatch off and there of course is gagarin inside with his back to them and he knows what's going on of course because he can hear it all on the radio and this engineer who's kind of running this operation sees gagarin's face in a little kind of mirror that Gagarin holds because his back is to him. So he can see it. And Gagarin says to him, and then over the radio, do you have any music you can play while I'm while you're getting on with this? <laughs> and everyone says, this is a missile bunker. And everyone's going, M- music? What, what it, does anybody have any music? Somebody finds some music. And somebody managed to grab a tape recorder from somewhere. And I don't know how they've got it, but they have a tape of some songs and they start playing songs down the line to Gagarin sitting in his capsule while these guys start screwing the 32 bolts back on one by one minutes before launch. And he sings along with them. And I've got, I managed to get the actual, not just the transcript, but the actual recording of this stuff, which you have to get from a state archive in Moscow. And I've got it. And you hear him singing and whistling this song, a song called The Motherland Hears, I think it's called. It's a Russian, it was a popular Russian song in 1961. And he's singing and whistling this song at this moment, minutes before he could be blown to smithereens on the launch pad. And while these engineers are frenetically putting the bolts back in place one by one and testing the pyrotechnic charges alive, before they leave the gantry and Gagarin is blasted into immortality. Again, inc- incredible. I mean, what a cool customer. I mean, at one point yeah, they're questioning. The right well, yeah, the Russian uh, right uh, stuff. At one point, I think they're questioning. They're saying, "Well, your Yuri, your heart rate is really low. You don't, you don't seem stressed at all about no, this." No, no, yeah. I mean, he has a kind of line about that, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, it is really. Is my he, he makes a little joke when he's where he says, "Is my heart still beating?" am i still alive yeah i mean look we've got to be we've got to be clear the guy was nervous as hell underneath it somewhere his heart rate did actually soar how would it not at the moment of launch i mean gosh i mean the sort of sound noise fury terror everything else and in fact the night before he and his backup and there's a great story there too which i won't go into now um his number two a guy called german titov who became actually the second uh, the, the second Soviet cosmonaut to go into space and actually did many orbits in August 1961. But these two guys were sleeping side by side in a room which still exists, a kind of little museum. It's in a cottage, effectively, on the Cosmodrome itself. And you can go, you can actually see it. If you, it's very hard to get to the Cosmodrome, but once you've got access to it, you can go and see it. And there are these two beds either side. So they go to sleep that night. And although Gagarin has been selected as number one, his backup is right there to take over if anything goes wrong. You know, if Gagarin falls and breaks an arm or if he starts to get really nervous or if he suddenly doesn't pass his medical the next morning or whatever. So they're sleeping that night on these two separate beds in this little kind of cottage in kind of rather weird, kind of unexpectedly rustic looking cottage in the middle of the Kazakhstan steppe in, in, in this cosmodrome. And they're sleeping side by side. But what they don't know because no one is going to tell them, is that underneath each of their mattresses are strain gauges. 
And connected to the strange gazers are wires, which are then fed from secretly through hidden holes in the walls, which then go across, you know, about 50 metres into another building nearby, where banks of people, I think there's doctors and psychiatrists, are actually watching these results of every single time they move in bed through the night. And the point being that whoever moves more is likely not to have slept well enough or slept at all and will not make it for that flight. So Gagarin, at this very last moment, could have lost his place as being the world's first human in space simply by moving too much in bed the night before. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. It is is crazy, isn't it? I mean, there's all this stuff that... (laughs) It, and 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 this is what you know that where where I really enjoyed the book. You know, I knew the overall story, but these little detailed vignettes that you've got in there and these first-hand accounts, you know, just bring it bring it all alive. Um, what what happens to Gagarin after the landing? Well, immediately after the landing, there's no one to meet him. Um, as I said, except an old lady and a and a and a and a kid. And then after that, basically, to cut a long story short, um, he is discovered and found, and then the world descends on him. It's really hard for us, from the perspective of 2021, to look back and realise just how huge this thing was. I mean, Gagarin, within hours, had become essentially the most famous man on planet Earth. I mean, he really was. He was the rock star of rock stars. He was the headline in every single newspaper around the globe. It was enormous. It was a massive victory for Khrushchev, for the USSR, all of it. It really was. And they made the most of it. It was a parade, technically a parade, more of a party, really. In fact, in some ways, unusually, an incredibly spontaneous party that took place two days later in Moscow, which is unquestionably the biggest party that Moscow has had in its entire history. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was millions of people. And it was broadcast live across not just the Soviet Union, but across large parts of Western Europe as well. The technology already existed to do that. Um, Because Khrushchev wanted to show everybody in the non- communist world just what had happened and just how amazing this moment was and there was a massive speech that take place on top of you know it it was given the full the full soviet works but the the incredible thing is i found footage um i was on the hunt for all sorts of footage secret footage that was shot and i found reel after reel after reel of uncut raw as it shot in the camera 35 millimeter color footage from camera crews that went roaming in those crowds on April the 14th, 1961, two days after Yuri Gagarin's flight, two days after he'd landed in that potato field. And the it is it is like looking at something from yesterday. I mean, the quality is just incredible, this stuff. And I, I use it to describe what was going on in the book. It is so dramatic because, and it's, I haven't seen, I mean, you see a few images that are very well known, but this is rushes. This is original, unedited, shot in the camera material. And what you see is real. I don't believe this is made up or faked or anything. It is absolutely real. And what is really interesting is that at the same, I mean, this is one of the things my book goes between, you know, the USA and the USSR and all these different kind of 
personalities. And sometimes these little timelines actually reveal very fascinating moments that, that only become clear as you start putting the timeline together. And what I discovered, and it's in the book, is that as Yuri Gagarin is in the middle of this unbelievable party, and as he and his family and his wife, I mean, these are kind of, you know, his father's a carpenter in a collective farm, you know, 70 miles in the middle of the countryside in Smolensk region. And suddenly he's being told by Khrushchev, being thanked for his son by Khrushchev, you know, in front of millions. Um, within, within hours, you know, I mean, it's the most extraordinary thing. So there is this moment where... Gagarin, and I worked it out, was actually being given by Leonid Brezhnev, the successor of Khrushchev. He was being given the hero of the Soviet Union gold star, was being pinned on his chest, no less, in the the brilliantly lit chandelier-filled Gordievsky Hall in the Kremlin Palace on the night of April, the afternoon or early evening of April the 14th, 1961. And exactly the same time, Across in Washington, D.C., in the cabinet room of, or the cabinet office of the White House, in the cabinet room, actually, of the White House, Kennedy is sitting down panicking. And he's got his advisors around him and he's tapping his teeth, which is what Kennedy always did when he's anxious. And what we have to forget about is Kennedy that we know later, the Kennedy that's this more confident, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, the Kennedy that was assassinated. This is a Kennedy who is literally just three months into the job and everything is going badly wrong for him. He's young, he's untested, and it's going wrong. And he's sitting there in the cabinet room in DC, in the White House, and he's got his advisors around him and he says, what do we do? And the reason we know what happened is because a journalist called Hugh Sidey, who was from Time magazine, had been in the White House that day and was actually invited into that meeting. Come and have a look. Went into that meeting and took notes, which he then recorded later. So we have another fly on the wall. So we can be with Yuri Gagarin at one moment in this incredible party with the whole world celebrating and Brezhnev pinning this hero of the Soviet Union medal on his chest and Khrushchev embracing his parents and thanking them for their son at the same time as as, as John F. Kennedy, the young untried president, is panicking in a meeting at the White House. And as a result of that meeting, really as a result of that meeting, the whole moon program starts to gather steam because what was then essentially a moribund idea that Kennedy did not support, actively did not support, suddenly starts to become something a way, to use Kennedy's own word, we can leapfrog them. He actually says at one point, even if the janitor in the White House knows what to do, I'll listen to him. We've got to get ahead. And so essentially, he starts a second space race which is the race to the moon. And it doesn't really get confirmed then. It gets confirmed the following month because within literally, I couldn't believe all these kind of serendipitous moments because within literally three days of Yuri, I mean, actually within two days or two or three days of that party that takes place in Moscow, Kennedy greenlights the Bay of Pigs invasion 
in Cuba, which is an attempt to overthrow Fidel Castro by CIA-trained guerrillas. And it failed spectacularly. I mean, it, it could even have pushed towards World War Three. one could argue. It is a disaster. And it happens three days later. So in a week, he's lost the race to put the first human in space. And he's got a major humiliation, a world humiliation, with the disaster of the Bay of Pigs, which does not end up in the removal of Fidel Castro. Far from it. It throws Castro much closer to Khrushchev. And so he is so on the back foot that the a few days later, he's found wandering in the Rose Garden at dawn. I've got a witness to this. Backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards in the early hours of the dawn. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And he comes back and the decision that was begun or set in motion in that meeting a few days earlier, how do we beat them? How do we leapfrog them? Becomes nailed. And that's the road to lunar landings, to Neil Armstrong's giant leap for mankind, to that footprint on the moon. It all comes right back to that moment. And what what happens to Gagarin? He is the poster boy for the USSR. Khrushchev's pet, essentially, gets sent with his dazzling smile, which is part of his appeal and part of the reason I believe why he was chosen to be first. I mean, he's a very competent man as well, unquestionably, and very likable, unquestionably too. But he's also got a great smile. He's nice looking. People really like him and warm to him, you know, and he's sent around the world. He goes everywhere. Actually, he doesn't go to the United States. Uh, he goes to the UN, but no, not to the United States. He comes actually to the UK and he's incredibly welcomed here. And he has a very successful tea with the Queen at Buckingham Palace as well. Uh, he's driven there in an open-topped Rolls Royce with the uh, number plate YG1, Yuri Gagarin 1, which I like. And uh, and she liked, she had a very nice tea with him. She, I mean, the, only very recently there was a there was an article about her, you know, her response to, because of the 60th anniversary. And she said he was very Russian, I think she said uh, the other day. <laughs> You know, it was reported in the press. Um, he goes, you know, he's, he goes over, but things start to go wrong. The pressure of fame, a little bit like Buzz Aldrin, you know, I think you could argue, or any of the lunar Apollo astronauts after the moon landings. I mean, the pressures are absolutely huge. You, as you've got to remember, this is the, this is all before any Neil Armstrong, any anything. This is the first human in space, and uh, it, it gets to him. You know, he starts drinking too much. There's some, you know, episodes of womanizing. His marriage it can get a bit shaky. I mean, his wife is is a very, very shy person, and she's suddenly plunged into her worst nightmare, being married to the most famous man on earth. And he goes to hundreds of countries, and he starts to descend a little bit. But he's also an iconic figure. So, so it's it's a very difficult place for him to be. He's this great iconic figure, but he's also you know, feeling the pressures of it all. And it gets worse because he gets fatter. Um, he desperately wants to get back into the space program as things start moving on ahead of him. And he feels left behind, um, but they don't want to let him go into space because he's too famous and they want to lose him if anything goes wrong. And then Khrushchev is basically stabbed in the back by Brezhnev in a palace coup. And Brezhnev, does, despite pinning that medal on, Gagarin is not a pro-Gagarin person because it's so much Khrushchev's man. And eventually something happens which really, really, um, I think, nearly destroys him um, because his best friend is killed, a man called Komarov, in a, um, in a test of a new capsule called Soyuz, which we have today, but at that point was very untested. And 
this guy Komarov went to space and it, everything went wrong. It should never have happened. This mission should never have happened. But the only reason why it did was because the Russians were falling behind and the Americans were getting ahead. And so they put this capsule and this time they took a risk that went wrong. And Komarov, everything went wrong. And essentially his parachute system failed and his capsule slammed into the ground and made a huge crater and he was killed. And he was Gagarin's best friend. And I interviewed Gagarin's daughter, uh, who was then about eight or nine years old when this happened in, I think, 1967. And she said to me, it's the only time she ever saw his father, her father cry, was when he said goodbye to Komarov in Moscow before Komarov went off to the Cosmodrome for this flight because he knew he was going to die. And he did die. And Gagarin was furious. He was, he was furious and he was powerful, you know, and there is some talk that he had conversations at quite a high level about this. Um, he was taken off any further flying in space, ostensibly because it really was too dangerous. He then tried to get back to flying jets again, and he was on a training flight with a very experienced instructor in 1968 when his plane mysteriously crashed and he and his instructor were killed. And no one really knows why. Why did that happen? There were investigations which were top secret at the time. Um, it sparked like the other sort of major, major deaths of, you know, hugely big celebrities like Princess Diana one thinks of, or even Kennedy himself, where there's a, a great swirling cocktail of conspiracy theories around what happened. And actually, no one has real answers. The original investigations were actually not uh, satisfactory. They were they came up with some sort of idea that I can't even remember what it was, that there was a, a, a balloon, a, a, a met balloon, a weather balloon that they had to avoid or crashed. I mean, it, nothing was quite satisfactory. So there are some people who to this day believe that actually Yuri Gagarin was murdered by people inside the system that thought he was getting too noisy and yet he was too iconic. There are others who think that he was just, it was just an accident. I tend to err on the size of an accident on the side of it. I think something went wrong. I don't think it was a, any kind of an institutionalized conspiracy, but I can see why there would be some people who might think that because when you actually have a culture of secrecy, the net consequence of actually having and encouraging such a culture is that people start coming up with conspiracies. I mean, it's just what happens. And so, and there's so much secrecy that this is, you know, this is, this is the result. Um, and it's never really been satisfactorily resolved to this day, but there was a huge outpouring of national grief, a massive, massive funeral in Red Square, which was a sort of a strange, dark, as it were, shadowed mirror image of the amazing party that had happened there seven years earlier when he'd come back from space. And then the mythic status went insane and he became a sort of god. And in a way, he still is. So even though in the West, people don't really know about Yuri Gagarin, and they know, that's a terrible thing to say, lots of people know about Yuri Gagarin, but they don't really know in the same way as they might know about Neil Armstrong and so on. And we were kind of finding that quite a lot, which is one of the reasons why I wrote this book, because I thought it might be interesting for people to, to, to read about it. And it's certainly interesting for me to write about it and to research it. But I certainly think that in Russia, that's not the case. 
And if you go to any place in Russia with which he was associated, you'll find museums that are a bit like shrines. So, I mean, even in Moscow, there is a kind of a Nelson's column, essentially, right in the middle of Moscow with his statue on top. It's actually bigger than Nelson column. Um, you know, it's really, really major. And if you go to his hometown, which was called Gzhatsk, which is about 100 kilometers west of Moscow, that's been renamed Gagarin. And there are now eight Gagarin museums in Gagarin. And in one of those museums, his own mother was actually forced to live in the last years of her life. So she was in her 80s living in a museum dedicated to her son. And uh, she used to be seen wandering around the rooms looking at artifacts with kind of under glass of his shirt or his kind of gym shoes, you know, or of a whistle that he once blew or something like that. And this old lady will be wandering around this museum and nobody quite knew who she was, but she was actually his mother. And she was living on the top floor of this vast, empty mausoleum of a museum dedicated to her own son. So that's kind of what happened to Yuri Gagarin. The book is called Beyond, the astonishing story of the first human to leave our planet and journey into space. It's by Stephen Walker and it's published by HarperCollins. The publishers have kindly given us three copies to give away, so do click on the link to the episode notes for details of that, as well as videos and further information about this story. Now, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast without the generous support of our patrons. However, I want to especially thank our Politburo level members who are contributing a generous 30 US dollars a month to keep us on the air. They are Tony Sowards, Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, Mark Labance, Jeffrey Jones, Matthew Comstock, Frederick Esposito, Jack Madwed, and Peter Ryan. Don't forget, if you like one of those Cold War Conversations coasters and help support the show, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, please visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information